Hey there, and welcome to Living Through It, a podcast for interesting times. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, a recovering lawyer, world-renowned leadership expert, and lifelong progressive activist and organizer. Reminder that if you want to listen to this podcast ad-free, you can head on over to patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. You can get access to our entire back catalog ad-free there, and also we have some special bonuses for our most favored listeners. Thanks so much for being here. And now here's this week's episode. Hey, hey, welcome back this week to Living Through It. I am so excited because this week we have with us Leah Greenberg, who is the co-founder and co-executive director of Indivisible. Yes, the national nationwide Indivisible. You've probably seen her husband, Ezra Levin, on places like MSNBC. And also you've probably seen Leah hanging around on places like MSNBC and CNN and NPR. Leah at the moment is... Uh, doing an enormous amount of great work in conjunction with Indivisible as we move past the 2022 election cycle and toward the next one. And so we're talking in this podcast episode about where Indivisible has been, what the experience of the kind of explosive growth of community activism has been like from the inside of that organization, and also about the unique experiences of becoming a parent while running a nationwide activist movement. Leah has some great insight in this episode, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So let's get to it. All right, and welcome back to Living Through It. I am so thrilled today to welcome to the podcast Leah Greenberg, one of the co-founders of Indivisible. Um, Leah and I have known each other through various channels for the last few years, and we've had you visit with uh, some of our indivisible cohort inside the Atelier, which is the little kind of leadership slash activist community that I run, where Rachel Sallow, who of course is an indivisible indivisible regional organizer, um, uh, has really set down a stake, which is awesome. So I'm thrilled to have you. You were one of my like first thoughts when we started the podcast about four or five months ago. And now here we have you finally, which is wonderful. So welcome. Thank you. It's so great to be here. So I want to talk a little bit about um, the start of Indivisible. And I, I, you know, I think, I think folks kind of know the sort of bit of the background of the story, but I'm interested in talking about uh, how it began, how you and Ezra Levin, who is also your husband, made the decision to start it, um, but also about what the experience of the rocket ship, it at least this is how it looked from the outside of its launch was for you, because I really am very curious as to whether or not you had any idea what you were doing. And I don't mean that like logically, but I mean, from the perspective of the impact it was going to have when you started out. Oh, we had no idea. Um, <laughs> I can say that quite, quite firmly. Um, personally, my background and my professional work at the time was in human trafficking policy and advocacy. I was managing a partnership of traffic uh, about the experiences of trafficking survivors interacting with the federal government um, up until Donald Trump was elected. When I walked into my office and said, 
to my boss, I don't think we can have a partnership with the incoming White House on human trafficking when they're going to do all of these things that will make people more vulnerable to trafficking across migration and criminal justice and social services and labor rights, et cetera. Um, and so I was already, you know, like a lot of people and, and like a lot of indivisible activists, like looking for a way to go straight at this problem of power uh, from my own vantage point. Ezra was going through something similar. He was an anti-poverty advocate. He was concerned that, you know, all of the great white papers that he was working on had no application at all in a Trump administration. Uh, and indeed that everything that we had all worked for so hard over eight years of Obama was about to be swept away. And that was really the imperative. Uh, but the other imperative was was recognizing, you know, that it wasn't just about the horrors and evil of an incoming Trump administration. It was also about pushing for a Democratic Party that would fight back. Um, we were both in a lot of conversations in Washington during the immediate period after Trump was elected where, you know, the dominant feeling was and among very you know serious and high level people, the dominant feeling was, well, we lost. Elections have consequences. Let's look for the areas of compromise. You know, maybe we can get an infrastructure bill through, et cetera, et cetera. And we were both very much um, aligned with the hell no wing. Um, you yes. know, no is a complete sentence. Uh, we did not need to have compromises with people who are going to be coming in and trying to uh, push through a Muslim ban or uh, detention camps uh, or close the border. And so. We were, uh, you know, we were already trying to figure out how do we do something about this? And the answers for us really came as we were realizing that there was something very powerful happening all over the country already. Uh, we were getting added to all these Facebook groups in where people were self-organizing or looking for actions to take. We heard from um, a friend who was organizing a group, uh, actually it was called Dumbledore's Army, uh, a group of about 4,000 people in the Austin area that was looking to take action on um, resisting Trump and wasn't sure what to do. We sort of had become informal advisors to that group. Um, and, you know, we realized that we actually had experiences from our own past history as congressional staffers early in our career that we could draw on as a guidebook for what to do next. So that was where Indivisible came from. It was this combination of leadership is not coming from Washington, D.C. right now. Leadership is going to need to come from this this incredible mass of people who have started to organize themselves. And also we have some really useful lessons from our time in Washington about what works and what doesn't work and what posture we need to take in order to minimize the harm of Donald Trump and in order to uh, get us all through this crisis for our democracy. Yeah, it's fascinating because as I was getting ready for this, one of the things that I realized is that tomorrow is actually the sixth year anniversary of the implementation of the Muslim ban. And I was outside the Brooklyn courthouse when the ACLU won the stay after all the protests that had taken place at JFK and various, I was still living in New York at the time and, you know, various, you remember that day where there was so much nationwide mobilization at airports and lawyers like myself were being called out to kind of start advocating for people who were literally on planes when the ban was put into play. That was the first moment where, for me at least, um, I was aware of the kind of like collective uprising potential <laughs> that was that was in play, right? You know, to be outside that courthouse with thousands of people literally in the freezing cold in January screaming about what, what had just happened. Um, and one of the things that was so fascinating to me in the weeks and months after that, kind of watching what happened with Indivisible, was how rapidly it became kind of like a nationwide movement 
moment, right? It became, it started to become a place where we saw people who had, you know, never before been involved in politics, never been activists. And that was not me. I mean, I, you know, organized my first protest at 15. So this goes way back for me. But, but I think one of the things that I noticed was that people I knew who had who had felt strongly about how dangerous Trump was and had obviously voted for Hillary and, you know, had felt fear about what was to come but didn't know what to do with it, seemed to gravitate almost instantaneously to the roadmap that Indivisible provided. And I'm I'm curious what that was like from the inside for you, you know, watching it so quickly become this thing, right? And also, and also kind of curiously in, a, in an interesting sort of way, um, every indivisible group had its own personality, right? Because, you know, what I started to hear from my nationwide organizing was like, well, this indivisible group is awesome. This one, sometimes there's people who don't show up, you know, like, or this indivisible group is, is over here doing all this work on this particular issue. And this one, you know, they've got like 17,000 ideas, but they're not really sure where to go with them. Right. And, and what was that like for you from like an umbrella perspective as all of this started to evolve so organically as a grassroots movement? The the short answer is it was uh, beautiful and awe-inspiring and totally overwhelming um, and incredibly stressful, like all at once every day. I think afterwards, you know, months and months afterwards, like six months afterwards, when I had finally started to get, you know, more than four hours of sleep a night, I realized that my body had basically been in fight or flight response for <laughs> basically the entire time. Um, it was absolutely more information than we could handle. You know, we were kind of hearing from people all over the country uh, on everything from, you know, like follow-up questions to map logistics, to strategy advice, um, to hostile right-wingers who were coming at us trying to prove that we were Soros-funded AstroTurf, all of the above. Um, we were trying to organize ourselves, right? We actually were very fortunate in that we had the ability to, um, each of us relatively quickly, or, or some of the core people, at least relatively quickly, were able to basically go full time on this. Um, I took a leave of absence from my job. Ezra took a leave of absence from his job. Uh, some early key folks were, were loaned by other organizations that really recognized the potential. I want to shout out, in particular, the National Immigration Law Center uh, lent us one of our co-authors, <laughs> uh, Angel Padilla, who eventually became our policy director. Um, you know, we were patching together like this volunteer infrastructure from our friends and our colleagues and literally anyone who would show up at our house and agree to answer emails on our behalf. Um, and it was never enough, right? Startups run on time, money, and people, and there's uh, never enough of any of those things. <laughs> um, and also, it was, you know, amazing and emotional, right? Because at this moment that was so terrifying for the country, we had this inbox that was just brimming with hope and ideas and act energy. Um, and we were getting reports from all over the country of people who were stepping up and finding their power in organizing, right? Because a lot of times it was people who were had a lot to bring to the conversation, but had never been told, hey, you have something personally valuable to contribute. Um, you do not need to be an expert in healthcare policy to join the fight to save the Affordable Care Act right now. You just need to be somebody who lives in the place that you live with, uh, you know, using your phone and using your voice and using, you know, showing up to the next event and here's how. So the short answer is it was, uh, it was a really, really beautiful time. 
I am really, really glad that it was a time limited period <laughs> because it took a while to recover. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm really proud of what we were able to accomplish and also, uh, you know, we'll never, we'll never forget kind of like the lost opportunities and missed opportunities along the way at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious just to touch on the fight or flight question for a minute, because, you know, one of the things we spent a lot of time talking about on the podcast is the way in which so many people now, six years on from that moment are struggling with, um, how to, how, I I don't want to say disconnect, but how to even like attempt to regulate the sense of constant danger, right? And I say that even in light of where we are right now, I want to talk about this a little bit more so we can kind of stick a pin in it. But, you know, we have what's happening in the house happening right now, right? Yeah. We have Marjorie Taylor Greene just yesterday being like tagged as a potential vice presidential candidate for Donald Trump in his run in 2024. And and she's a white supremacist, right? So it's not like there's not a current threat. So, so what did you learn in the aftermath of that at the, you know, forefront of this incredible movement about what you needed to do for yourself physically, emotionally, spiritually in order to survive it? I'm really curious what the moral of that story is in your own life. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, the, the somewhat, uh, not, not totally appropriate to the gravity of the moment metaphor that I use sometimes is like that we're in the horror movie and we're in that period of time where, uh, everyone's like, Oh, the monster has been killed. It's cool. We can go back to our normal lives. And, and, you know, if you've ever watched the horror movie, like, you know, perfectly well, the monster is not dead. They're planning the grand finale. Um, and, and yet most people will kind of like gravitate back towards something normal because humans are hardwired to seek out feelings of normalcy. It's exhausting to be in a state of constant threat. Um, it's, you know, overwhelming to realize exactly how dangerous a sustained period we're in. And I do think that we, you know, have to balance that with an understanding of the historical frame and outline of where we are. Right. Um, and I think you've spoken to this incredibly eloquently in your own writing, right. That, you know, Trump was not a, Trump was not a sudden disruptive appearance. He was a manifestation of forces uh, within our democracy that have been active basically since the founding of our democracy and before that, um, that have taken different forms and different shapes and different names over the years, but that have fundamentally been about a, a fight about who is actually included within our democracy, whose voices count, whose votes count, who deserves to be safe and valued, um, and a voice of kind of a a white grievance, uh, white reactionary movement that has long had very significant impact on the ultimate outcomes of our democracy, even if a lot of the ways that it's done that up until now have been more coded than they were during the Trump era. So I think like some of it for me is putting it in that historical context and recognizing that this wasn't some disruptive break where suddenly our democracy was in danger. There have always been anti-democratic forces. There have always been white supremacist forces that would happily, just to kind of take some of the Heather McGee framing, happily break our democracy rather than share it. They happen to be more on the surface during this period of time. They happen to be manifesting in particularly dangerous and frightening ways during this time. It's important to recognize that continuity, even during the periods when they may not be quite as prominent in the threat that they are facing. Um, and it's important that we have an organizing strategy that is about in the long term, how do we pull, 
how do we pull power away from them? How do we build towards that inclusive democracy ourselves? Uh, and how do we ultimately create, you know, recognizing that it's a generational challenge in some cases, I'm, I'm related to some people who have some of these views myself, um, recognizing that it's a generational challenge, how do we ultimately create the kind of democracy where every election is not a potential crisis for the basic ability and freedom to vote? Right. Right. I mean, and and I think that's, it's so interesting for you to put it in the context of Heather McGee's work because she's so brilliant. And so much of what she talks about is like, how do we share democracy across the beautiful intersectional diversity of what we claim to be, but have never arrived at. Um, and, and so I'm curious, you know, as we look at what many people have framed as like arguably a victory in the context of the midterms, while still we've we are not currently in charge of the House. It's chaos in the House. We had a near fist fight on the floor of the House during the, you know, the, oh, the speaker Elizabeth, vote that eventually brought McCarthy into the chair. Um, uh, how are Hello? you? How are you feeling right now about where we're at? And I know, like you know, so many of my priorities, just to touch upon what you just said, are about things like voting rights, right? And you know, yet here we are in a scenario where. Uh, partially, I think, because of the agreements that he had to make to the far right wing of his base and also because of what the Republican Party has just simply very overtly and, as you put it, not in coded format, made plain about themselves over the last six years. It's really unlikely that we're going to be able to get, for instance, the Freedom to Vote Act through both chambers of Congress, uh, notwithstanding the fact that we still hold the Senate and the presidency, you know, what, what, what do you think, where do you think we're headed right now in the context of, of this challenge to build a democracy where every election isn't, oh, uh oh, we're about to go off the cliff. Right. Well, I think we have to hold two things at the same time. And one is that in a lot of ways, the 2022 results were really extraordinary, right? Um, we had a historic outperformance of what you would expect for a party in with that had governing authority in the midterms during a period when most people are pretty frustrated with the state of the economy and how things are going. That's uh, that's incredibly unusual. Um, you have to, you know, you have to go back centuries in order to find the appropriate historical precedents for what happened there. And particularly, I think the nightmare scenario that we were all concerned about was one in which backlash at the national level led to the kinds of gains for Republicans that we saw in 2010, where, you know, Republicans swept state legislatures, they swept governorships that set them up for a sustained period when they controlled the rules of the game. This election cycle could have delivered a bunch of pivotal swing states, governorships, attorney generals, secretary of state races, legislatures, two Republicans who were avowed election deniers and conspiracists um, or criminal conspiracists. And we averted that and repudiated really en masse in swing states um, those kinds of election denier politics. And that is enormous. Um, so there is this one piece of this, which is you know, we should all be really proud that we yes. defied political gravity. And another way of saying that is kind of like, we live to fight another day, right? Um, <laughs> like we didn't yes. actually, <laughs> we did not, we do are still facing, you know, those same currents. And we happen to be in a really, really dangerous particular context for that election. And we averted many of the worst harms, but we're still dealing with some of the after effects, right? And 
the Kevin McCarthy MAGA majority house is one of those things. And we're going to see over the next two years exactly what MAGA governance looks like. It's this politics of chaos and cruelty and control. It is this, um, you know, ethos uh, that is just enormously damaging to everything that we hold dear and enormously unpopular, actually, when you yes. look at most yes. how most Americans react, right? Um and I think we have one, uh, both we're going to, we're going to see some real threats and some real potential harm, and we have to be organized to prepare to avert the worst of that, right? We know they're going to try and take the debt limit hostage. We know that they are going, or debt ceiling hostage. We know they're going to try and essentially attach the most harmful and nasty stuff they possibly can to every attempt to pass a budget or any must pass bill. So we've got to be organized. We got to make sure that we're fighting back against that stuff. But we also have this really important opportunity and window where they don't have full control of the government, so they can't do all of the horrible things that they want to do, but they're in a control enough that we can actually point to them and say, do you want more of that? Absolutely fucking not. Right. Um, and so, right. And, and that actually sets us up really well to make the argument that we need to make to get into a 2025 where we're back to governing authority, where we have the 50, I would say 50 or 51 seat majority, but 50, 50 democratic senators who are actually prepared to reform the filibuster in order to move forward on our most basic values like voting rights. And we have the ability to get to, to use that federal authority again, to get to a more level playing field for everyone all over the country and to secure some of those rights that we need. Now, again, like if we do that, it's not game over, right? <laughs> like right. This, is, right. this is a sustained process. Um, we, we joined at a particular point in American history, but it has been going on for all of American history and it will be going on for the future. Um, and I think that that's, that's both uh, exhausting and comforting, right? Like we're, we're picking up the torch from people who have been, who've gotten us here yes. and we'll keep passing the torch on to others. Right. It's, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I have said to people since 2016, since even before he was elected, that it's one of those things where like, once you're on the path, you don't actually get to step off of it. You might get to take a pause, take a nap, take a break, eat some dinner, you know, like take a take a, a week away from the news, right? But it's not like once you've reached this point of sort of recognizing what systemic harm looks like, right? Mm -hmm. The ways in which the systems that we're living under are being used and manipulated with every loophole being exploited to cause harm. It's not like once you see that, you can unsee it. Right. Right. So I think right. some of the challenge is to uh, exactly as you said, like prepare for the prospect of living to fight another day and understanding that the cyclical nature of that actually, I would argue, is um, is something of a divine in invitation of sorts. Right. Like we're being invited to rise to the moment. And um, and as you said, to carry on the torch, which I think we should not forget. You know, I mean, I, I think often about the loss of Elijah Cummings and the loss of John Lewis and the loss of so many other civil rights leaders over the last few years and just how devastating that has been to those of us who have been movement building, you know, for a long time, you know, if you're me, it's like a 35, 36, I'm aging myself, your history <laughs> right now of, of doing some of this work and you feel that loss. And at the same time, there's, there's an, there is an opportunity there that, um, that I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't damn with pessimism for, <laughs> for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, and that leads me to a question, but I've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. 
how's Indivisible changing right now? You know, I mean, obviously, when Biden was elected in 2020, that also was a was a pivotal moment. Everybody loves that word pivot. But, you know, it was a pivotal moment of sorts. And now here we are after the 2022 midterms. Um, what is that doing for you all as an organization? What's it doing from a macro level as to, to the hundreds of chapters? How is it looking going forward for you all right now? It's a great question. Um well, we actually just released a new guide. Uh, you know Yay. what we do uh, every every new new Congress, new national political setting. We update our strategy, right? Because like what we're doing in 2017 doesn't make sense to do in 2019. Doesn't make sense to do in 2023. Um, so we actually are continuing to think through. You know what is the best set of ways that we have an impact that we protect democracy, and that we ultimately we as an organization support indivisibles around the country to ensure that we're collectively greater than the some of our parts. Um, and that's going to look, one of the big pieces uh, that I, I think we emphasize in our new guide is that that does look like different things based on who uh, you are, who is accountable to you uh, and where they sit within the process, right? So there's one big piece that's about getting Democrats to do a great job, right? To yes. stand up, to fight back, to present a strong and winning alternative um, that people really identify with. And so one piece of that is, you know, if we've got democratic representation, how are we making sure that we are promoting those fighters who are actually presenting that story to the American people that they can trust? The next, um, obviously, is what do we do about Republicans, right? Yeah. Um, and I think we're we're doing a couple of different things. So first, we have an immediate challenge with the Republican House, right? And we have an immediate lever of opportunity with the Republican House, which is that there are 18 Republicans who are in seats that Joe Biden won in 2020, who know perfectly well that they are going to face some very, very tough re-election fights in 2024, and who are either going to have to go along with this MAGA majority or or split from it. And either one of those things is going to pose a lot of risks. And so there are huge challenge opportunities uh, around how do you actually make them pay that political price for the fact that they are enabling this kind of MAGA politics or themselves personally part of it, depending on who they are. Um, and also, how do you make sure that uh, we we don't we don't accidentally push ourselves into or we don't nobody ends up in a situation where we go over the debt ceiling cliff uh, and tank the global economy? Because that would be bad. Bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing that we started experimenting with over the course of the last year was really moving beyond. And this was I, I, I think this is very much a credit to indivisibles themselves who you know pushed us on this was moving beyond kind of thinking about just the purely legislative outcomes of our advocacy and thinking more about, you know, to the extent that we have this broader conflict with a MAGA worldview. How do we pull more people to our sides creatively using the tools that we have by dramatizing that contrast in ways that get a lot of people's attention and that help them to understand what's at stake, what's the threat in an election situation, in a general situation? How do we actually tell that story of the fight against MAGA? Um, and so that's sort of moving from saying, like, I'm going to advocate around this congressman and this bill because I think it might actually impact their, their decision to pass it or vote for it versus I am going to think about what I can do in my community to make that contrast between our values, inclusion, pluralism, um, support for everyone uh, and their values, right? you know, chaos, cruelty and control. Uh, I'm going to make those contrasts and those choices explicit and I'm going to do it in ways that as many people understand as possible. Another piece of this that I think is important is thinking about how do we get the word out about stuff that is 
happening, stuff that has happened under the Biden administration um, that will actually change people's lives and make make things better. Uh, and that reflects the genuine positive cycle of government, right? You vote, you uh, see you are able to pass policies that improve people's lives, uh, and then you see tangible benefits. When we are, we're talking about stuff like the IRA, right, which is going to be this massive leap forward in terms of our own ability to uh, take advantage of clean ener green energy. Um, the IRA is very the IRA is popular when people hear about what's in it. Most people don't know what's in it, so there are That's a right. lot of opportunities, particularly because Indivisibles, you know, they are trusted community groups. They are all over the place. They are often in places where. Uh, there is not a ton of progressive infrastructure even, and they actually have the opportunity to say, we're going to actually serve as that community voice for stuff that people should know about that, but that might not be getting through via Sinclair News or might not be getting through via our local right-wing radio station. So all of that on the table for 2023. But I think the bigger piece that I would pull out, you know, is that we are we're always going to be a movement where we have some things that we're working on together and some things that we're supporting folks on across the country, right? And one of the things that I'm really proud of, um, and I wanted to highlight this particularly because I know that there's some very active indivisible leaders amongst your membership. Um, one of the things I'm really proud of has been the reorganization and development of our national support, our network support team, which is specifically focused on, you know, recognizing that it's hard to be a volunteer leader. Um, yes. Nothing about our system is set up to facilitate uh, long-term volunteer activism. It's all, you know, it's, it's structured around C3s and C4s and PACs and compliance with often complex systems, right? Um, we try to make a bunch of different resources available to provide the infrastructure, the tools, the support, the financial resources that help people focus on their activism. And so in relaunching this team over the last year, we have been really focused on how do we bring all those things together? How do we get a ton of feedback from Indivisible Leaders on what's working, what's not, what they want to see more of? And how do we make sure that that is a really coherent package so that as many people as possible have the support that they need to do whatever they define as the most important work? Because we're really aware that like we support you know, folks who are doing a ton of things and we couldn't ever possibly direct the like level of creativity, the level of local engagement, the level of impact that indivisibles have in their communities all over the country. But we can maybe provide some support that is helpful to them in anchoring their group such that they can do those things themselves. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I mean, one of the big things that I've really been leaning into since before the midterms, really for like a year before the midterms, was the the incredible importance of organizing where you live and not just being focused on the national issues, which of, of course you have to focus on in a midterm national election, but also to remember that, you know, this the target sites by the far right right now are your local school board. They're your, exactly. your local water board, your city council, your county council, the people who are making decisions about how you get your energy, right? All of that is being targeted by far-right forces. And if we're not consciously mobilizing, doing those kind of deep canvassing strategies, even, uh, you know, with our neighbors, um, it becomes much harder for us to make an impact. You know, we had a non-Giradardis on the podcast I think in October before the midterms. And I don't know if you've read his new book, The Persuaders, but you know, so much of it is about how can we persuade people of these progressive values that we hold dear? How can we stand in that spot and not give up ground and still simultaneously 
uh, win people over to our positions in a way that creates a better future because it's what we believe in and what we value. And I think so much of that work, I think a lot of people miss the fact that so much of that work happens over your back fence, right? Or at the baseball game or at your kid's soccer practice, right? And if we're not prepared to do the local work that I think so many of your local indivisible chapters are engaged in, right? If we're not prepared to be mobilized where we live as well as nationwide, um, every single opportunity will be exploited by the far right to gain ground. So, um, so I love that you've done that. And I love that that's an area of focus. And I think it's really critically important to our future as a, you know, as a, as a multiracial, multigendered, multidiverse democracy. I think it's really critical that we learn how to talk to our neighbors across the back fence and in every way possible. Um, all right. Well, so a couple of additional questions here, um, that I just wanted to sort of talk through on a more personal note, you know, you have had a baby in the middle of all of this and you're pregnant again now. And, you know, your experience, uh, through all of this of becoming a mother. Um, I mean, I know from my own experience, there are certain things that, um, in your own value system and the way that you look at the world <laughs> change so dramatically with the process of becoming a parent. Um, and if it's not too personal, I'd just like to ask you about like, you know, what that's, what has that been like for you? You know, at the forefront of all of this, you and Ezra together as parents, you know, moving through the process of becoming parents and giving birth and also, you know, in some sense, giving birth to a movement, you know, at, at, at overlapping times, you know, what has that been like? How has it changed you? And, and what, what has that experience taught you? Yeah, no, it's been, well, it's been, it's been fascinating. Um, yes, (laughs) I'll say a few things in no particular order. I think, um, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't particularly necessarily changed my politics, but it's often changed where I find my motivation from. Um, you know, before this, I think a lot of my work really came from, uh, you know, I was, I was a kid who, I was always the kid who cared a lot about fairness. Like I got upset in, you know, second grade, if things weren't fair, um, and was, you know, doing newsletters about sweatshops in the sixth grade and trying to convince everyone to boycott Nike and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, having a kid just brings home this visceral level of personal connection to the future and what's important, uh, that, that I didn't have in my work before. Um, you know, I think the thing that I think about a lot, like I read Zeke, uh, my son nursery books at night and I read him stories about whales or stories about tigers or stories about pandas. And I wonder, are those animals going to actually be here? Am I telling him about stuff that he will never actually have in his lived experience because they'll be gone in 10 years? Um, I'm telling him, you know, I'm, I'm sharing with him stories over and over again where, things are fair and the universe is kind and everyone is good to each other. And uh, I want to make that world so that he can live in it. And I want that much more, you know, deeply and personally, um, <laughs> even, even if the, the work is actually very similar to what I was doing before. Um, and I think, you know, just feel much more keenly uh, like the needs and the demands and the impossible things that we place on families in this country. I, you know, I remember I did not um, personally experience postpartum depression, but I found myself very, very depressed on behalf of all of the people who did not have what I had with Zeke. I remember going to CVS a few months after Zeke was born and realizing that baby formula was locked behind a counter and thinking about the fact that we live in a country where baby formula is locked up and that just the full implications and the horror of people not being able to feed their children with what they have 
and you know, that's just reigniting my, my, my desire to yeah. live somewhere else. Um, in terms of kind of the personal aspects of it, you know, it's a funny thing because Ezra and I, um, we're both co-executive directors of Indivisible. We're not, we're, we're different people, but we do have kind of functionally relatively interchangeable job responsibilities. And that's actually been a really cool and good thing in some ways for having this twin, you know, having an organization and an actual baby at the same time, um, where, you know, I think a lot of the challenges that couples face often, if they're both really committed to their careers, is that their careers are different. They have lots of different needs and imperatives and different timelines. And, you know, maybe you have a busy time at work and I have a busy time at work and who's going to trade off and who makes those sacrifices. And with us, it's really, it's so simple because we just say, you know, who is best for the baby and who is best for the organization right now. And we can trade and be a team in a really cohesive, co uh, loving way. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, that's been really beautiful. Uh, so, you know, That's I don't, awesome. I'm not sure that I would recommend everyone kind of like try to have the same job as their spouse, but <laughs> it, sometimes it works. Yeah. That's that. No, it's fantastic. And it's, I mean, I, I find it very revolutionary in its own way because, um, you know, that certainly was not my experience. I'm not married anymore, but that was certainly not my experience at the time. And, you know, I will tell you also that I think that, um, it's just really interesting from a gender perspective because it does sound like you and Ezra have managed somehow to circle around the sort of like mom has to make all the sacrifices for the sake of the baby kind of conversation that I think a lot of couples don't even – straight couples don't even um, mm -hmm. have to – they don't even know how to articulate. It's just assumed, right? It's sort of part of what right. we're indoctrinated right. to believe about mothering and mothers and all of that. So, so I think that's really, that's really great. I mean, I will tell you that I personally, I have been on a tear lately, however, about the lack of support for mothers as a single mother, full custodian, sole supporter right now, you know, like my whole thing has been healthcare, right? Like I'm on Obamacare. So believe me, like I get the priority of it. And I also have these moments where I'm like, why do I still have to pay $350 for an emergency room visit? Like, you know, why can't we just have full blown universal health care for everybody that's free? You know, that, and I know, you know, some people will tell me it's pie in the sky, it's America, blah, blah, blah. You know, I lived in France for a year. I know it can be done. It's not out of the question. It's just a matter of like your priorities and your values and all of that. But I think so many people don't think through um, the experiences of families under pressure unless and until they are one, right? And I, that's not just about healthcare. It's also about finances and family leave. And I had postpartum depression with both kids. I had to go back to work 10 weeks after my first kid was born and I wasn't even given a room to pump in. I had to sit in the server room that was 55 degrees because it was the only place that had a door that couldn't be seen through and my employer wouldn't make room for it, right? You think about the ways in which the, the positions that we force people into when they become parents predict those sort of mental health crises, the physical health crises that come with it. And, you know, one of the things that I'm just thinking about a lot lately, and then I'll stop because this is like my rant about motherhood and family right now, but it's just the way in which like so many of these things that we, we put individual responsibility onto people for, right? Well, you should just be able to manage pumping breast milk and working a high profile legal job at the same time. You just have to learn to be resilient and accommodate when in fact, like the end result is systemic, right? Like the cause is systemic. Like women do not get postpartum depression in huge percentages because there's something wrong with us, right? We get it because 
the pressures and the causes and the the means by which we are forced to return to the workplace out of crisis, mm-hmm. out of need, sometimes out of desire. Certainly, I don't want to discredit women for whom that's the case. But I mean, it's really hard and it doesn't have to be that way, right? So you start to see things through a different lens. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to ask the question because I was just really curious given where you sat in all of this, how your feelings change about it, right? Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, and I think, you know, just to add to that, um, we have been through a three-year incredibly bracing period that has made very clear exactly how little uh, the powers that be care about women, families, and the need yep. to uh, manage childcare. Um you know, I mean, and we could, we could probably do an entire separate podcast about what <laughs> yes. the pandemic taught us, but, but I do yes. think that you know, this is a period that, um, like speaking as somebody who ran an organization that was trying to figure out, okay, what do we do about the fact that like folks have just lost childcare, they've lost schools, they're, you know, being put in these absolutely impossible situations with taking care of kids and largely abandoned by society. And for some reason, the debate that we're having, in public is like, do I need to wear a mask to go to, you know, the grocery store as opposed to what do we actually do to ensure, you know, the health and well-being of kids and our families? Um, it's, I mean, you know, <laughs> we don't, we don't need to go into how many ways our priorities are backwards or have been backwards yeah. during this time or the frustrations associated with it. But um, it's just been a, a striking time I mean, personally, I realized I was pregnant with Zeke right as the pandemic was starting, like about a week Mm. before everything shut down. Um, And both the combination of the experience of being able to work from home and, you know, have a relatively stress-free pregnancy by virtue of being, you know, a privileged person who could work from home, who had a nice home that I could work out of, who um, had flexibility over my own working conditions. And then, you know, (laughs) emerging from giving birth into the world of, Good luck with childcare. You know yes. the system will help at age five. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> is just such a bracing experience. Um, and you know, we were very, very fortunate. We had a ton of family support. We were able to to put stuff together. But uh, you know, it's just it's impossible what we ask of people, and yeah. it's somehow getting worse. Yeah. And, you know, it, it just leads me just as a final thought to wrap this up to this thing that I have been talking about over the last couple of weeks. And I was even thinking about it this morning when I was kind of just thinking through where we are and how we, how we as a society and a culture are talking about care, right? Because one of the things that I said a couple of weeks ago, um, which, you know, seemed to really sort of smack people between the eyes, and I didn't mean it for it to land this way, but was the idea that there's a very big difference between saying we care about people and actually caring for people. Uh, Do we actually, if we care about children, right, are we actually setting up mechanisms that allow children to be cared for, right? If we say we care about women, families, transgender people, you know, like immigrants, right? All these things that America is supposed to stand for in, in an idealistic fashion, right? If you're on our side of the fence, because certainly it doesn't for some people who are not. Um, are we setting up systems that actually care for people? And one of the things that I just think is so critical right now when we talk about the future of participatory democracy is that we've really got to shift from a place of 
word to action, you know? And I know there are ways in which that has happened. Yes, it's an arc. Yes, we try to bend it. Yes, I understand that over time change has happened um, and that there's always a backlash. I also understand that. But I, But to me, one of the things that's so clear right now is that Caring is more than just the verbiage you attach to it. And if we say we care about families, we have to make sure families are cared for. And that to me is just, it's just so resonant in my own life, you know, as a, as a mom, as a single mom in the context of my own family and my own house and the pressures we face and everything we're up against. And I know it's, it's the case for so many of us. And, and, and it is in many sense, yes, there, you know, there are certainly different layers of what we experience based on our relative privilege and the intersectionality of our identities and, you know, where we live and the kids we're raising and all that sort of stuff. But at the same time, there is a way in which it's also very universal because when we provide for children and we provide for the most vulnerable in our society and we actually make sure people are cared for, we change everything. Everybody benefits like, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. So anyway, I'll stop ranting on that. <laughs> it's like been on my brain so much. And now here we are, two moms talking about it and you're expecting again. So congratulations on that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I want to ask you the three questions that we ask everybody. So as we, as we wind down here, the first we've already touched on a little bit, but I'm, I'm interested to hear what you, what your answer is to this anyway. What keeps you going? What keeps me going? Um, uh, sheer darn stubbornness. No, um, <laughs> nobody has given uh, that like, answer before Leah. You're the first. <laughs> I, I, I'm a very stubborn person. Things are, have things been fixed yet? No. Okay. Well then I guess we're going to continue. Um, I, I actually like totally, honestly, that's, that's part of it, right? Like I, um, I got into this work because things weren't fair. Things are not fair. They're getting less fair. Um, I'll keep going. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, in terms of what keeps me going and like what recharges me, um, I really think that being part of a movement and being able to like being able to recharge from each other is just so important. Um, I am a fortunate person in that I get to regularly hear the stories of people who are making a difference, you know, who hit a roadblock, turn around and figure out some other way to get the change they need. Um, who come out of nowhere to do something that really matters. I get all of those things come to me on a regular basis and I get to be in contact with and in support of the folks who are doing that work. And that is a deeply recharging experience um, all the way through, all the way through the Trump era. You know, you could always open the newspaper and see something horrible, but you could also turn around and see the people who are responding. And, you know, you were part of that. And that was, it was a blessed place to be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, uh, it's so key. And it, it, it's one of those things where I think when we neglect the, the, the folks who really are on the ground trying to find ways through it and to support one another and to act in mutual aid and to create change, we also, you know, sort of lose our sense of community with one another. And so I think that's so key is that we have to, we have to, you know, my friend Fred Gutenberg says it, we have to look for the helpers and the people who are there doing mm -hmm. the good work. Um, okay. Second question. What are your most pressing concerns about the state of America and the world right now or the world right now? <laughs> no small questions. I know we could, it's another one where we could be here for like an hour. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think that, um, I think one pressing, well, I mean, I'm concerned that democracy is under attack. I am concerned that 
we are at any given point, you know, one election away from kind of falling down the democracy doom loop where the people who mean ill to our our democracy, our system, our rules of government gain enough power to continue to rig the rules in ways that become irrecoverable. Um, I think you could make a plausible argument that we're already pretty far down the democracy doom loop, given the state with the Supreme Court. Um, I am also concerned about whether some of the truth and honesty and openness about what had gone wrong over, you know, the 2017 through 2020 era uh, that was on the surface at that point is receding as people perceive less threat. Right. I think that. Um, we should be real that regardless of whether Donald Trump is coming back in the form that he was, you know, in his uh, 2017 form, when you look at what Ron DeSantis is doing yes. in Florida, when you look at the attacks on education that are happening there, you know, trying to get rid of AP African-American history, what you're seeing is a, you know, a MAGA 2.0, right? You're seeing a lot of the same principles that Trump pioneered being tweaked but not reformed in any meaningful way in order to continue to tap into that white reactionary movement that is fundamentally um, still seeking a way back into power. And so I am concerned about whether, you know, the clear clarity of the analysis that we were able to hold during that time when Donald Trump was saying the quiet parts out loud uh, can sustain during with a, you know, with a sharper package. Yes. And, you know, it's it's fascinating. We had two people on recently. We had Brandon Wolf on, of course, from Equality Florida, Pulse nightclub shooting survivor. And then we mm-hmm. also had on Toby Gialuca, who was the voter protection head for St. John's County in Florida right after Brandon. And both of them spoke about, and this is something I've been concerned about, honestly, for like two years now, but about the looming refinement of the fascist worldview through Ron right. DeSantis, who's, who is more polished, less off the cuff, seems more capable of controlling his outbursts sometimes, you know, but nonetheless is doing things from a policy perspective that are terrifying. Um, and, you know, I think about it particularly, Brandon was actually just posting on Instagram about this this afternoon, about the way in which gay families are fleeing Florida. 50% of the gay families in Florida have considered leaving the state since the Don't Say Gay bill was passed. And if that's not a harbinger of what's to come in light of what they are testing in Florida right now and Texas, of course, because mm-hmm. a lot of it's running in tandem, um, you know, I don't know what is. I think we've got to be really mindful of the fact that, you know, the outrageous clickbait of Donald Trump is actually in some sense not the largest looming threat right now from the standpoint of where we're headed. Um, and, and you know, folks need to be aware of that. So I appreciate that point. Okay, final question. We have this amazing audience on this podcast of, you know, activists and change agents and indivisible members and leaders in their own local communities, folks who have been involved in activism for short or longer periods of time. And so the final question I always like to ask is, what can our audience do to help shift all of this? What's your best advice for people on the ground in their own communities, in their own lives on how to make a difference on these really critical issues we're talking about? Uh, uh, My advice is going to be specific to where you are and what leverage you have. But I think my biggest piece of advice is figure out how to get involved in person. Um, If you are interested in Indivisible, um, you can look through our website to see if there is a group that is organizing near you. We are also always happy to connect you with your regional organizer. You can see some of the strategies that we're outlining for the coming years and how we're going to be supporting folks who are part of those strategies. Um, 
I think the biggest thing that I really consistently stress is that um, activism is the antidote to despair, right? Being engaged, being in community with people who are also fighting the good fight, having like the ability to say, you know, looking back and being able to say, these are the things that we've done and that's how we'll, that's how we'll keep moving. Those are the things that are going to keep you uh, engaged. Watching, watching TV is not going to do it. Like reading the news, staying up on the news is not going to do it. A really tangible plan for action and the human connections in person are what you need in order, or the human connections and community are what you really need to actually stay in the fight. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, you know, it is, it is the thing of understanding for me at this moment, and you touched upon this a little bit earlier when we were talking just about how deeply unpopular these strategies of chaos are, that there are so many more of us than there are of them. And it's really just a matter of us pulling together across movements and across identities and being in community with one another and pushing forward toward the same aims with a shared understanding of values that, you know, we get to where we all, I think, know we need to go. So this has been fantastic. Leah Greenberg, co-founder, co-executive director of Indivisible. I'm so grateful for you making the time to do this and um, for all of your hard work and all of Ezra's hard work and even for his guitar playing that we are editing out in the background <laughs> for his for his presence uh, in, in oral format here while we've been doing this. I'm so grateful for you. Thank you so much for being here. Of course. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Absolutely. And we will be right back. Okay. Well, as promised, that was fabulous. I want to give you guys a few takeaways to think through this week as we think about some of the things that Leah shared here. One of them is about this issue of community engagement, which, as we've talked about so many times on the podcast and I've talked about so many times elsewhere, is so critical to how we create a participatory democracy for everyone. So I think one of the key features about Indivisible and its success and about some of the things that Leah shared here is that you can make a difference where you live. And the more that you are engaged where you live, again, as we talked about, over that back fence in your local Indivisible group in your community organizations, whether it's indivisible or something else, every step you take in that direction to work with your neighbors and to share information, particularly if you are a blue dot in a red state, makes such a difference. So think this week about how you might be able to engage in ways where you live that are going to push the needle forward. And then I also want everybody to just remember that even in the state of burnout that so many of us are experiencing right now, this place where we're tired all the time and it feels like the slog has been endless, we have made a difference. We are making a difference. And the journey is not one that's going to stop. And I think as we take our breathers right now, we find these moments where we are trying to recalibrate after the midterms and as we move toward the next election cycle. I just want to invite everybody to remember that, as we mentioned at the end of this podcast, there are some looming challenges right in front of us that are going to need our attention. So start thinking now about what that kind of engagement is going to look like for you going forward, because every voice matters and you are needed. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. If you want to know more about me, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, head on over to GaiaLeadershipProject.com, where you can check out all our in-person and virtual leadership programs for folks who want to create change at work, at home, and in the world. 
You can also read my essays on politics, law, and change at newsletterwithecm.substack.com. And last, but definitely not least, you can listen to all our episodes of Living Through It ad-free over on Patreon at patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. Thanks for listening and see you next week.